<clears throat> well, I want to begin uh, this morning with a, uh, a tale of two cities. I'm not talking about uh, the, the Dickens historical novel. Uh, I'm talking about two cities that crossed my path a few years ago in an unexpected way. And one was the right city, and the other was the wrong city. Let me explain. So, I had received an invitation to speak at a men's conference on a Saturday in Danbury, Connecticut. Now, Danbury was of interest to me because I actually had grown up for about six years in grade school and junior high school in Danbury. And uh, so I was delighted to get to return to that area. I had been in, in New England off and on several times in, for speaking engagements, but never in Danbury proper. And so I got to thinking about that trip, and um, I decided, you know, I I'd love to go by my old church, you know, where I was as a boy. And I can still picture playing around with my uh, friends in the fifth and sixth grade out in the parking lot. I can remember sitting in Sunday school class in the basement of that old church. But uh, when my family lived there, for most of our time there, we attended the Danbury Baptist Church. Now, that's actually, I didn't know it at the time, I was just a kid, but it's actually a pretty historic church, and it's connected to one of the uh, principles that we hold dear to this day, the separation of church and state. I don't know if you knew that, but that phrase, of course, is not in the Constitution, but it's based on a letter that Thomas Jefferson, who had just become president in 1801, sent to the Danbury Baptists. And in that uh, letter, he was wanting to reassure them that he believed in religious liberty because at the time they were being persecuted because they didn't belong to the Congregationalist establishment, which was so strong in Connecticut. They were Baptists. And so uh, Jefferson wrote a letter to that, uh, those Danbury Baptists in which he said, quote, "...believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of the government reach actions only and not opinions." I contemplate with sovereign reverence the act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus, and this is the famous quote, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Uh, so anyway, that has nothing to do with my story, but given all that's going on in the world today and the connection to Danbury Baptist, I thought I would... I would share that. So I was scheduled to go speak at this church, and I thought, wouldn't it be neat to go visit the church? So I got online, found the Danbury Baptist, and found an email, and I sent him an email, and I said, my name is J.B. Hickson. I'm going to be speaking at a men's conference in town there, but I actually grew up in your church and uh, was wondering if during my off time between sessions or something, I might be able to stop by and just take a tour for nostalgia's sake and walk through the walls and, you know, remember... Uh, you know, what it was like sitting in that old uh, historic sanctuary and so forth. Well, uh, the pastor uh, replied and uh, much to my delight said, oh, we'd be honored for you to come by. In fact, while you're in town, would you like to stay over on Sunday and preach? And I thought, wow, that would be just amazing. So we began to have this dialogue and began to make plans. And somewhere in the course of the dialogue, I mentioned uh, or asked the question if my old Sunday school teacher from the fifth grade was still attending there. I did some quick math, and uh, you know, I, I thought she might still be living. Her name was Mrs. Baldwin, 
And, uh, and at the time, I would have been, what, 10 years old, maybe 11, something like that. And she seemed really old, because when you're 10 or 11, everybody seems really old. But uh, I, in thinking back on my memories, I'm thinking she probably was fairly young, because one of the reasons my uh, buddies and I really liked Mrs. Baldwin's fifth grade Sunday school class is because she drove a fire engine red Corvette. <laughs> And it would, I can still picture it being parked in the parking lot, and she would always say, now you boys stay away from my car when we were playing around, throwing the football or whatever in, in the parking lot. But anyway, when I said, is Mrs. Baldwin still there? He said, let me see, I'll get back to you. And he checked around, he emailed back, and he said, you know, I've talked to a lot of old-timers, and nobody here remembers anybody about any name named Mrs. Baldwin or anything about a Mrs. Baldwin. And I said, oh, that, that can't be. I mean, she was prominent in the church, and... Anyway, one thing let her know, and I think, I think what finally happened was I mentioned something about the logistics, and I was planning to fly into LaGuardia, and uh, he, he replied immediately, LaGuardia? You talking about in New York? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, and I was thinking he might be thinking there's another airport, but I've flown into that northeast a lot, and it's a lot closer than Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, he said, you do realize this is Danbury Baptist in Danbury, Texas, don't you? <laughs> and I had not <laughs> realized that. And uh, can you imagine the embarrassment if I just showed up at the Danbury Baptist Church in Connecticut expecting to preach? And they said, who in the world are you? Not only that, but I would have really been embarrassed by being a no-show at some church down in southeast Texas called Danbury Baptist. And uh, so we got it all worked out and uh, got a good laugh out of it. The, the, the wonderful thing was when I finally connected with the right pastor in the right church in the right city, he too, after hearing my story, uh, had me invited me to stay and preach on that Sunday. And so that was really a special moment. That was about six or seven years ago, really special uh, time. But uh, two cities, the right city and the wrong city. As we continue our study of the book of Hebrews, the writer is going to continue to challenge his readers and by extension us to trust the Lord in trying times, to have an unshakable faith. And in this particular context in chapter 12, where we've been kind of camped out for a few weeks now, he's talking to a group of people who obviously were looking for refuge, were looking for a some type of protection from the persecution they were facing and that many other Christians in their uh, community had already faced. Uh, and essentially what they were doing was looking for God. And some people are looking for God in all the wrong places. And so the writer is going to make a very strong contrast in this passage between two cities, the right city and the wrong city. And he's going to challenge the readers that they better not confuse the two because it will lead to far more than just some logistical headaches and a bit of embarrassment. It could lead to some serious consequences, loss of reward, loss of blessing, and the natural consequences of making poor choices. So let's dive in uh, to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll pick up in verse 18, which is where we left off last week. And I want to start by taking a look at the old city. The old city and seeking refuge from the persecution they were facing, they were contemplating, as we've said many times, fleeing to the safe haven of Judaism. So again, in case there's people that have just kind of joined this 
series. The context is the late 60s A.D., the original recipients of the letter to the Hebrews were Jews who had gotten saved. They had believed the gospel, become born again, and were part of the Christian church. But they were Jews by heritage, and so they had come out of Judaism. As best we can tell, in many cases, a lot of these recipients had gotten saved early on, perhaps even on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem when the church was born. So they had been saved then for some 30 years. And yet, over time, their maturity had waned. They had kind of gotten uh, ill-prepared for life's crises. They weren't well-grounded. And so as Nero's persecution really began to target the church, a lot of Christians, for self-preservation reasons, were abandoning and forsaking the assembling of themselves with the local church on Sundays and reverting back to their old way of life in Judaism. And so, in this, and, he, and throughout this letter, he's been challenging them that don't do that. Don't do that. They felt that somehow by disassociating with Christ and Christianity, they were making a wise choice. And we don't want to be too hard on them because remember the context. Who among us, in the midst of real ser serious persecution, <clears throat> might not do the same thing? But the whole call and challenge of Hebrews is don't do it. Jesus Christ who saved you, shed his blood for you, and gives you eternal life is far better than anything that you might find to replace him. And so uh, the old, he's trying to say, is not better than the new in this case. And in this particular section, uh, really 18 all the way to 24, he's going to contrast two cities and in this first section, he's going to paint a picture of what the old city was like. Now, they, I'm sure it didn't take much for them to conjure up memories and pictures of what it was like. Just like as I was thinking about growing up in Danbury, and I can remember the Meeting House Hill School that I attended and where I used to ride my bike, and I can remember specifically the church and, and that was such a part of our lives. I'm sure as he began to recount passages from Exodus and Deuteronomy and other Old Testament passages, these original readers could very easily remember what it was like to live under that old system of Judaism. And then he's going to compare it to the new city and remind them of the blessings that they have. So we'll pick it up in verse 18. He says, You have not come to the mountain that may be touched. So the next few verses very vividly describe the giving of the law the Old Covenant, at Mount Sinai. And he gives this picture of the awesomeness and fearfulness that it engendered in that moment when the law was, was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So he's going to use Mount Sinai and Mount Zion in this passage to, as contrasting metaphors to show the difference between a relationship to God under the old way versus a relationship to God in this present church age with all of the blessings that come with it. Now, in our 9 o'clock hour, we've been studying what lies ahead, the end times, and we've spent some time several weeks ago contrasting God's plan for Israel with God's plan for the church. And we talked about how God has a purpose for both, but they're not the same thing. And when we talk about their way of life under the old system, we're in no way suggesting that it was somehow a different way of salvation. People 
got saved from the penalty of sin the same way in the Old Testament as they do today and have throughout all ages, by faith. But the way in which, under the old system, they interacted with God as believers, the way they could approach God, the, the symbolism and, the, and all of the rituals and sacrifices that looked forward to the ultimate Lamb of God who would give his, shed His blood for the world, was different. And so, in contrasting these two systems, he's essentially asking, would you really be better under that old system? Before you hastily flee your circumstances on earth, this physical trial that you're facing, really, really think about it. Are you really better in that situation? So we want to note the contrast right from the beginning. You have not come. So he's going to talk first about the old system and how that's not what they're under now and really highlight uh, the differences. So by referring to the mountain that may be touched, he was referring to the stark warning that was issued on the occasion of the giving of the law. So we could go back to Exodus 19 where God is giving Moses instruction as he prepares to go up on the mountain to receive the law and he says you shall set bounds for the people all around saying take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base for whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death now to give you some historical context the israelites arrived at mount sinai or the, the plains surrounding it uh, about three months after they had left egypt and they stayed there 11 months Remember the old gospel song, Take Another Lap Around Mount Sinai? You know, they stayed there trying to really learn the lessons. Um, the mountain in the Sinai range that most scholars believe is the very mountain peak where God gave Moses the law is in the southeastern part of the Sinai Peninsula. And there's a, uh, in Arabic, it's named actually Jebel Musa, the mountain of Moses. Um, but there's a natural slope to the land to the southeast of that particular Peak, and we can envision pretty easily here in Colorado looking out across mountain range and sort of picturing one particular peak or high uh, mountain. And, but this, this slope to the land would have provided Israel a good view of the mountain where the law was given as they camped there. And the writer you know, is painting that picture for them because even though they weren't there, they knew the oral tradition and they knew, of course, the Old Testament books of Moses and they knew everything about the details of that revered moment when the law was given. And so on that occasion, God says, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. In fact, so serious was it to encroach on God's holiness that no one could even touch the person who touched the mountain. Not a hand shall touch him. There's like secondary contamination or something. Uh, he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. Right? The picture of God's holiness here is stunning. Uh, holy, the word holy in Scripture means one of a kind. There's none like you. And if we shift forward, so this was 1446 B.C., when the law was given as they left Egypt and began the wilderness wanderings. Now let's fast forward to an as yet undetermined time when at the end of the tribulation, Christ comes back and inaugurates the kingdom and 
the new heaven, ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. And you go to Revelation 15, and this is sort of a prelude to that final judgment of God at the very end of the tribulation, the bold judgments, or the old King James called it the vile judgments, V-I-A-L. And uh, these judgments were, uh, were seven angels that had the, the seven last plagues, that the, and in them the wrath of God is complete, the Bible uh, tells us. And then we see these seven angels singing this song as we get ready for this climactic event that's going to culminate in the return of Christ to take the throne. And the book of Revelation tells us they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. It's called the song of Moses because it's hearkening back to yet another powerful, significant moment where God's power was on display in the life of Israel. And that was the the crossing of the Red Sea, which had happened just three months earlier than this giving of the law on Mount Sinai. The Song of Moses, which is taken from Exodus chapter 15 after they crossed the Red Sea, is a very beautiful song, again, recounting God's faithfulness, His protection, but most of all, His unbelievable power. I mean, the parting of the Red Sea in and of itself was, was a powerful display. And so I'd like to read just a portion of that song of Moses since the writer in Revelation here refers to it. They said, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name, Yahweh there. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, often a symbol for strength in the Bible, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters will be gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap, and the depths congealed in the heart of the sea. So we see God's wrath in the Exodus at the parting of the Red Sea being poured out. And then we see the book of Revelation, the ultimate outpouring of God's wrath in the great day of the Lord's wrath, the tribulation period. Uh, a reference back to that song of Moses. And what do we read? These angels, as the prelude to the final parts of God's judgment, cry out, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For you alone are holy. Ultimately, all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. So when we talk about God's display of his power and holiness at Mount Sinai, I mean, it, it, was, it was a big deal. I mean, this was God, the eternal creator of the universe, making himself known, setting the standard through the law. If we go back to our text, that verse then continues Again, uh, no doubt bringing to people's mind, the readers, the text from the Old Testament and the events that accompanied the giving of the law. 
He says, you've not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire uh, and to blackness and darkness and tempest. Notice again, you've not come to that. Well, this takes us back to Deuteronomy. As the children of Israel, 40 years later, prepared to conquer Canaan, Moses recites Israel's rebellion and, and other times of obedience, but he reminds them that through the whole uh, time in the wilderness, God's grace was evident. And Moses says, Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain. At this point, he's hearkening back to what had happened at Mount Sinai, but it's still an account of what happened. And the mountain burned with fire, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. That in English looks like he's being redundant with the word darkness. It's actually two different Hebrew words. The second one is better translated gloom. So with darkness, clouds, and gloominess. At this, on this occasion. You know, I've, I've often thought, and I'm sure I've even said it in different contexts, that Deuteronomy was just sort of a rehash of what's previously been revealed in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But in reality, you know, that's not a really a, a great way to describe it. The book of Deuteronomy records selective, very important matters that would were meaningful to the average Israelite, especially on the cusp of going into the land. It's, it's aged Moses speaking like a father to his children. These essentially are the parting words of this man who had seen God face to face, communed with God face to face, and, 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 and he had, his faith in God had matured over 120 years of, of living. So really, Deuteronomy is, is one of the most significant books in the Old Testament. In fact, it's quoted over 80 times in the New Testament. And in all but six books, so 21 of the 27 books in the New Testament include a quotation of Deuteronomy. Uh, it's often been pointed out that there are four Old Testament books to which Christians throughout 2,000 years of church history have often made reference, and they kind of stand alone, stand out by themselves. Genesis, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah. So when we read Moses talking about this moment in Israel's history early on in the wilderness, he's, he's pointing his, his readers, his, his, the Jewish audience there, to familiar territory and reminding them of God's power as they got ready to go in and face the giants in the land. Well, in the same way, the writer of Hebrews is using familiar territory to remind uh, the first century Jewish Christians, by way of a contrast, just how amazing their relationship is today. Do they really want to go back to that moment? And I, I think sometimes when we're facing a trial, we need to remember the obvious. As we've talked about in previous sessions in our journey through Hebrews, it, it's certainly easy to kind of flee to your comfort zone, but you don't want to lose sight of what you've really got. So now as we go back to the text in verse 19, we pick it up with, as we talked about in our Bible study, our the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words. Again, the writer of Hebrews is painting the picture that they would have been familiar with. We could go back to Exodus 19 where we read, the sound of the trumpet was very loud and all the people who were in the camp trembled. That's how loud it was. Interestingly, and I'm not sure what to make of this, but in my studies 
of the spirit of the Antichrist and all of the manifestations of that in our present age as we get ever closer to ultimately the return of the Lord at the rapture. Uh, when I talked, when I studied the, the increase in phenomena, and we know biblically there's going to be a huge increase in phenomenalistic activity, spiritual, you know, paranormal type activity after the rapture, um, there have been reports all across the globe of tr strange trumpet sounds. And nobody can really pinpoint where they're coming from, but these are independent reports from thousands of different places. And it just makes me wonder if in the spiritual realm this is a warm-up, if you will, uh, for what's going to happen at both the rapture and the tribulation and ultimately the second coming. But in this case, we're going back 1,400 years before Christ to the giving of the law. And Exodus reminds us how terrifying it was. Go to chapter 20 of Exodus. They trembled and stood afar off. So the writer of Hebrews, having reminded them of, of that aspect of what happened when the law was given, when there was a the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, then he adds a parenthesis. If in your English Bible, you should see a parenthetical here in verses 20 and 21, when he sort of reminds the readers, for they, the wilderness generation, could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much, and then he quotes again, if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And then he adds this, and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and, and trembling. So you know, the, 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 the holiness of God was, on manifest, was, was manifest so powerfully that even Moses himself was fearful. And occasions of the manifestation of God's presence are almost always moments of great fear. Uh, you could think of uh, um, in, when the angels announced to the shepherds that Messiah was born. And uh, what did they say? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good trial. They were, they were The light shone around. They were sore afraid, right? Or we think of Mount of Transfiguration, when the disciples hit the deck, when, when uh, Christ was transfigured. So the experience of the wilderness generation obviously would have been well known to his readers in Hebrews. He's made several references to it. We can go back to chapter 4 and talk about the rest and how some didn't get to enter their blessing in the promised land because of unbelief and all of that. But even Moses himself was, was terrified. So here's the point. When we truly begin to see God in all of his holiness and power and might, it makes the new intimate relationship we have with him through Christ all the more glorious. And that's the writer's point. You know, don't you know what you have? Why abandon it? Uh, so there it is. You know, the law in the day said, stay away, do not touch, keep out, do not trespass. But in the present age, after the veil has been rent in two, after the very Son of God Himself has shed His blood and defeated death, hell, and the grave with His resurrection, access to God is readily available. In fact, it's encouraged. Remember what the writer said in Hebrews 4, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. I mean, wow, there, that's a difference. You didn't hear Moses saying, Okay, everybody come boldly, gather around, let's kneel on the mountain, and you know, here we're going to have a little communion with God. It was stay away. Stay away. Don't touch. In fact, if you touch and someone touches you, you're both curtains, right? But now, come boldly to the throne of grace.
Now, remember the readers, this is in 67 AD, they should have known by now that the law had served its purpose and run its course and a new day had dawned. In Galatians, which was one of the first letters written in the New Testament, it had been around for 25 some odd years, 23 to 25 years since by the time the writer of Hebrews is writing his letter. And it was a circular letter. And so Paul had been traveling and speaking. So undoubtedly they knew this teaching. Uh, but apparently they hadn't owned it enough to recognize what a mistake it would be to go back and put themselves under the law. But in this epistle, Paul, who wrote Galatians, reminds us that the law was put in place for a limited time. He says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, transgressions till the seed, that's Christ, should come. To whom the promise was made. Remember, Abraham, uh, Jesus is the ultimate seed of Abraham. So he's saying, why revert back to this old system that's now obsolete? Paul goes on in Galatians 3 at the end here to say, So then the law was our guardian or tutor until Christ came. Now you notice I'm using the ESV here. This may be the first and probably the last time I ever actually quote from the ESV. I'm not a huge fan of, of the translation technique nor the translation choices in many cases that they make. Uh, but if you have a good study Bible, New American Standard, New King James, even a, a, a King James study Bible, You'll notice that sometimes as you're reading, you'll see words in italics. Well, if anybody ever took the time to go read the front matter, which sometime take an afternoon and read the front matter in your Bible. It's fascinating stuff. It tells you all about how we got our Bible and all of that. But anyway, you would find in the front matter that words in italics are there because it indicates they weren't there in the original text. And they're just inserted by the translators to smooth it out. And you get to Galatians 3, 24 and 25, and the New King James, my preference for English translations and the New American Standard, insert the phrase to bring us to Christ or to lead us to Christ. Those words weren't in there. It's just one preposition, ace. So if you read it with a wooden literalness, it would say the law was our tutor to Christ. The law was our tutor or guardian is a good translation to Christ or until Christ. And the idea here, based on the context, as I already showed you just a few verses earlier, is that the law was put in place until Christ came, until he arrived. He was, he was a tutor, right? Uh, but now he goes on to say that faith has come. We're no longer under a guardian. We're under the law written on our hearts. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and convict and encourage and so forth. We're not subject to the law. We don't need that guardian anymore. I mean, when you get right down to it, basically Paul is telling the Galatians here, stop crying for your nanny or your mommy and grow up. That's what he's saying. Remember, in the context of Galatians, these were believers who were very new young believers, and they had started to revert back to the law as a means of sanctification, growing in their Christian life. And Paul says, no, no, you begin the Christian life by faith, you need to live the Christian life by faith, not under the law. Well, Interesting, later on in Galatians, Paul makes a similar contrast to two cities the same way we're looking at a contrast in Hebrews 12. Now, you, you know I tend to, to lean toward thinking Paul wrote Hebrews. We see so much correlation there. But we, we can't be sure who wrote Hebrews, but we can be sure that the Bible has one ultimate author with a capital A, and God is making the same point in Galatians 
4 as he's making in Hebrews 12. Because in Galatians 4, Paul says which things are symbolic. Now we have to pick up some context. Which things there, he's, he's talking about uh, Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was born of Hagar. Isaac was the son of promise through Sarah. And he's talking about the dis- differences between Ishmael and Isaac. First of all, Ishmael's mother was a slave, whereas Isaac's mother was free. And then the condition of each of them because of their mother affected their status in Abraham's household. Uh, Second, Ishmael was born naturally, but Isaac was born supernaturally in answer and fulfillment of a promise of God. So which things are symbolic? Uh, Paul is using Ishmael and Isaac as symbol symbols or examples. And then he points to uh, Mount Sinai, just the way the writer of Hebrews does. He says these are the two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, Ishmael, which, get, which is of Hagar. And then the other, he says, is of the Jerusalem that is above, the new city, the coming new Jerusalem, which, of course, is free. So he's making the point that nobody should go back and put themselves under the law with all of its fears and bondage and doubts, but rather should live by faith, trusting God, as represented by Isaac, the son of promise. Uh, You should live like and act like a citizen of the new Jerusalem, the ultimate dwelling place of all believers. So don't forget how the writer of Hebrews, by the way, described the law in chapter 10. I know it's been several weeks since we were in chapter 10, but back then we said, for the law having been a shadow of the good things to come, Again, the law is not bad. The law served its purpose. It's all part of God's divine design, but it's done. It was a shadow of the real things to come. You know, sometimes when we take our 20-month-old granddaughter to the park on a bright sunny day out on the green grass, she'll see her shadow. She's fascinated with it. Or a shadow of a ball that we're bouncing around. and She's trying to grab it. She'll kneel down and try to to grab it. Now, now that's fine for a 20-month-old. In fact, it's pretty cute. But for adults, or in this case mature believers, to be infatuated with the shadow when they've got the substance, the real thing, it doesn't play well. And in fact, in Hebrews 5, the writer of Hebrews rebukes these believers who by now should be mature, but they're still kind of working on the ABCs, if you will. So while the law is valid, it doesn't solve our problem. It served a purpose, but it's kind of like a mirror. You know, you've probably heard this analogy before, but when you look into a mirror in your bathroom, you see maybe hair that needs to be combed or face that needs to be cleaned or a collar that needs to be straightened. The mirror reveals what's wrong and what needs attention. But it doesn't actually comb our hair or wash our face or fix our collar. And the same is true with the law. It's also been said the law of God is like an x-ray. It'll reveal the problem, but it won't fix it. And the law just pointed, to, it highlighted our need and pointed toward the ultimate solution, which is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's the old city. The old city. It would be a terrible choice to go to the wrong city. I read a story once about a bear cub that lived in a 12-foot by 12-foot cage at a zoo, and it lived there for quite some time, and, and it got to know the cage extremely well. In fact, it was said the bear could could really move around in its world 
and, and, and could close its eyes and it would walk along one fence and with its eyes closed before it got bumped into the wall, it would turn. And then it would walk another 12 feet before it bumped to the wall, it would turn. And it just knew its surroundings very well. But of course, over time, it got larger and grew up. And so the handlers decided to put it into a larger cage, a 36 by 36 foot cage to give it a lot more room to experience life. The problem was that even though it had moved to a new cage, this bear brought the old cage with it. It was still being held hostage to the limitations of its old life. And so as it would walk around, it would get, guess what, to 12 feet. Plenty of room before you get to the end, but it would stop. And it would turn. Then it would go 12 feet, and then it would turn. And then it would go 12 feet, and it would turn. Even though it had been promoted to a whole new environment, it had not shed its habits that had been learned in the old place. And that's sometimes the effect of the law on Christians, even to this day. Now, we're not, I don't know for sure, but most of us are not Jewish believers who came, got saved out of Judaism. But we still have a tendency toward legalism. We still have a tendency to elevate the law as a nanny. Boy, you know, we need, we need to cross our eyes, or cross our T's and dot our eyes, right? But that's the old city. Well, the new city is... is greater by far. And, and sometimes we're uncomfortable with the new city. I totally get it. Um, I used to travel a ton, and, and in, because of all my travel, had you know, achieved a top status with rental cars and airlines and so forth. And so uh, one of my frustrations was that um, you know, I, would, I would go to pick up my rental car, and they'd say, oh, uh, Mr. Hickson, because of your top status, you know, platinum or gold or whatever it was for the rental car agency, they'd say, we've upgraded you. We've given you an automatic upgrade. I remember one time I, I got out and I said, I said, oh, that's fine. You know, you think free upgrade, I'll take it. I got out to the car and it was a, I'll never forget, it was a Dodge Challenger sports car. And I am not a sports car kind of a guy. I'm sure that won't come as a shock to you. When I was a kid, my, my car was a 71 Super Beetle. I just wasn't into cars like a lot of my friends were. But, uh, I got out there, I got in, and I literally could not figure out how to start the car. It was so fancy. I went back in, and I said, just give me a regular car. So then I get to the event where I was going to be speaking, and there were some couple of 20-somethings guys there, and I was talking to them at the booth, and I told them that story, and they said, oh, you missed the chance to drive a Dodge you know, Challenger. You're crazy. I'd kill to drive a Dodge. And I started to feel bad. I thought, man, I had forfeited the opportunity for this much better experience. It really made me, made me regret my, uh, my choice. And so that was what these believers were facing. They were comfort, more comfortable with the old way, and they had not appreciated the value of the new way. So he, he starts out with another contrast here, but but you've come to Mount Zion. So here's the second city, the new city, the city of the living God, right? And, um, you know, it, it, as terrifying as it was to come to the mountain of God under the law in the present age, we've got direct access to him. We're citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, he goes on to say, the new Jerusalem. So in, in a very real sense, the readers needed to remember where they lived. And we need to remember where we live and where we're going someday. Paul in Philippians said, our citizenship is in heaven. We're just passing through. And notice he says, from which we eagerly await the Savior. And that's why in Colossians he says, we should set our minds on things above, not on things on earth. 
These Jewish believers were fixated, understandably so, on the trials of life, which were pretty severe in some cases. And they needed to remember that someday Christ, who is our life, is going to appear. And then, then it's going to be amazing, the city that we see. What does the Bible tell us in Revelation 21? At the end of the millennium, then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God in complete sinless perfection as God destroys this old earth cursed by sin and recreates in sinless perfection the earth and the heavens and all of creation. And that's where our citizenship is. And uh, we, need to, we need to remember how, how we have that unmitigated access. He goes on in verse 22 to talk about the, the new city as a city of innumerable angels. Now, the writers talked a lot about angels in Hebrews, especially at the beginning, because the original readers were somehow enthralled with angels. If you remember, he talked about in chapter 1 how much superior Jesus Christ is, the, the Son of God and their Savior, than angels. Angels, he says, are just ministering spirits, right? And, uh, and they play an encouraging role in the present age. And that's kind of his point. In the Old Testament, angels were often uh, messengers of doom. And, and, and not always, but often. But in the New Testament, angels are said to be ministering spirits there to help us. And, you know, he mentions that to get their attention. It's almost like a bookend. He starts out by referencing angels because he knew they were interested in angels. Then towards the end of the letter, he reminds them, this new city that you're a part of is, is filled with angels, right? In chapter 13, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, he's going to point out that angels are sometimes just strangers. When you entertain a stranger, be careful. You might be entertaining an angel and not know it. Did you realize that? That angels can manifest as human beings? And so they're there to encourage us. He says, you've come to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. That's the, all the Christians of the church age who have died and are already in heaven enjoying the blessings that await those uh, when we see the believers who've trusted Christ when we see the Lord. For them, their faith had become sight. Remember how in chapter 11, the writer had given this whole list of men and women of faith who'd gone before? And then early on in chapter 12, he, he, he kind of makes reference to them as a motivation. Well, he's bringing that up again, except here he's, in this particular case that's highlighted, he's talking about specifically Christians who've died, believers of the church age. He says, you've come to God, the judge of all. See, on Mount Zion, we can come to the presence of God, not like Mount Sinai. I mean, this was an incomprehensible concept to a Jew who knew only the God of Sinai. But at Christ's crucifixion, as I said, the veil in the temple was torn in two. To come into God's presence at Sinai was to die. To come into God's presence today in Zion is, is to experience the fullness of life. Going back to Revelation, it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That speaks of that ultimate when all is said and done when time shall be no more that ultimate landing place of intimacy between a creator and his created and we look forward to that time don't we and then he says you've come to the spirits of just made men made perfect that is that's old testament saints not church age saints but old testament saints who've died like abel noah abraham moses david and many others in the great household of god you've come ultimately to jesus the mediator of the new covenant 
I mean, the ultimate goal, the ultimate end of our faith, as he started out chapter 12 by saying, is Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so, of course, he points to Jesus in this summary of the new city. You come to the blood of the sprinkling. Jesus Christ sacrificed the ultimate sacrifice better than anything even that Abel did in his sacrifice, going all the way back to the beginning of time, or any other sacrifice since then. So that's the new city that awaits us in all of its glory. You know, um, I love, like a lot of guys, to go to Home Depot. And uh, it's a little different now with all the chaos and the, the COVID stuff and all that. But, you know, before all this, you know, I, I just enjoy going to walk. But I kind of mixed emotions about it because, you know, while it's fun to walk around and dream of all the things that I can build or do or see all these new gadgets that I never knew I needed until I saw it, you know, and... Uh, that's fun. At the same time, the other side of the coin is when I'm in Home Depot, it usually means that I'm trying to fix something in the house myself, right? That's what Home Depot is for. So people can go there and take care of things themselves. Instead of calling a plumber, you go to the plumbing aisle and you get a PVC elbow or something, you know. Instead of calling an electrician, you go to the electricity aisle and you get an outlet or a switch cover or something. Um, you know, that part of Home Depot I don't like because that means there's work for me to do, right? Home Depot's made millions out of teaching people how to fix themselves. Basically, if you are within reasonable distance to a Home Depot and have YouTube, you can fix any. You never need to call for service on anything, basically, is what I've discovered, right? Well, it seems like these original readers, like a lot of Christians today, were Home Depot kind of people. Something went wrong, a crisis arose, and they are used to being their own boss, the captain of their own uh, suffering, if you will. And, and they forgot that they have an author and finisher of their faith. They have, forgot they have someone they can turn to, that there's already someone who's a captain of our lives. We don't need to take matters into our own hands. And the new city represents life in the Spirit, life with Christ, life dependent on the Holy Spirit's work in and through us not fleeing every time some negative circumstance comes up. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, meaning the physical body, really I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the bottom line. Live by faith. So the takeaway is walk by faith and not by sight. And you'll get to the right city you'll get to the right city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just this reminder. It seems like every week of, of the importance of faith and trusting you in difficult times. Lord, strengthen our faith. Uh, we confess our weakness of our faith. And Lord, if there's one here today who's never placed his or her faith in uh, your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again to pay our penalty for sin, I pray that the journey of faith would begin even now before they leave this place in simple, childlike faith, they would trust in Jesus, the only one who can forgive sin and give eternal life. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's close this out with.